If you would take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, as we uh, come to one of Jesus' sermons. This is a sermon that apparently he gave after he had initially uh, called his apostles. And then speaking to both the apostles and the other disciples, Jesus um, spoke these words to them. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 20. Our, our uh, text this morning is going to be verse 37 through 42, but I think it's important that we catch this in its context. Let's begin then reading in Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To, one, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful." In our text this morning, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind, lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into the pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take this, out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So far, the reading in God's Word this morning. We're continuing through our um, 
series in Luke and through Jesus' sermon in Luke chapter 6, and we're finding it to be uh, increasingly more uh, convicting. Anyone who, um, who thinks that Jesus was primarily just a moral teacher and that all Jesus wants us to do is, is just do the things that he tells us to do, uh, such a person cannot possibly have read Jesus' sermon here with understanding. Because these are not possible things to do. If, you have, if you're honest with your own heart uh, and you read Jesus' words and if you, if you actually believe that Jesus is not just uh, speaking religious platitudes but actually intends his disciples to do these things, you will quickly come to the realization that Jesus is asking the impossible. If you've ever actually tried to love your enemy, if you've, if you've tried to bless someone when they're cursing you, if you've tried to, to pray with good intent for those who, who abuse you, if you've tried to rejoice when people persecute you, well, you, you realize that we're not good at this. In fact, we just come face to face with our utter inability. We're not capable of actually just following Jesus. Just do what Jesus says. This is a sermon that's meant to expose us. It's meant to, to help us see that we, we need help. We need a Savior. We need grace. And in this uh, portion of the sermon, maybe even more than the others, Jesus puts his finger exactly on this issue of, of the need to see. Can the blind lead the blind? Uh, how well do you see as we live in a world where we have to engage other people and we got to deal with other people's sin? Jesus is asking us this morning, how well do you actually, uh, are you able to do that? And the key is, how well do you see your own? Do you understand who you really are and what, uh, what you really need and what you've actually truly have received from God through Jesus Christ? This is a, this is a sermon... Uh, that Jesus is preaching, it just lays us open. He says, don't judge, don't condemn. Uh, that's, very, that's very convicting, and uh, we're going to peel that open this morning. Uh, we're going to find that conflicts are where, uh, the places where our own heart gets examined and, and our idols get exposed. It's the place where our core commitments are, are laid bare. Do you realize that when you're in a conflict, your uh, attention is focused almost uh, exclusively on the failure or fault of the other person. When you're in a conflict, by nature, by your default stance in that conflict is to uh, find ways to justify your behavior, justify your emotion, justify your words, and you have laser vision into the faults and failures of the other person. What's, uh, what's even uh, more difficult about that is oftentimes you're right. You do see what's going on in that person's heart. You do see what's going on in their life. And yet Jesus said, unless you have that same laser focus and, and um, awareness, you see, of what's going on in your heart and in your life, you are utterly incapable of following what Jesus says here. You will do exactly what he forbids you to do. You will judge, uh, you will condemn, you will bear grudges, you will not forgive and you will not be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
And so the Lord is speaking hard words, but they're good words as if we're willing to be trained by them. The, uh, the, the, the text really lays out very uh, logically. Jesus gives uh, two, uh, these commands, and then there's consequences as he, as he attaches a promise to each command, and then there's convicting questions. So, so uh, the outline is, well, don't worry about the outline. I didn't hand out an outline. I just want you to listen. Uh, if you want to take notes, take notes. But... Uh, let these words really uh, just address you. Because in the, in the uh, commands, you'll find two, pos- two negative commands and two positive commands. Don't judge, don't condemn, the two negative commands. Give and for- uh, forgive and give, the two positive commands. And th- those commands really point to two different stances, two different ways of being in the world. You can either be in the world uh, with a stance of law, the stance of, um, well, there's pride wrapped up in it. You're going to be the person who observes and sees and comments on the failures that you see around you. That's the stance of law. Or you're going to be in the stance of grace. And so the stance of law involves judging and condemning. It's what the law does. It's what it's for. The stance of grace is a stance of giving and forgiving. It's a stance of, of lavish grace and kindness to people who don't deserve it. And those are two utterly different ways of being in the world. And so we're going to look at those and then... Ask, how can we become the people Jesus is calling us to be? And so let's begin. The stance of the law. Judge not. There is an incredible amount of confusion uh, about what Jesus means here. This is one of the, one of the verses that people uh, throughout this uh, country seem to know. Uh, if they don't know anything else about the Bible, they know that Jesus said somewhere, judge not. And, uh, and they'll remind you of that if you ever try to make some sort of a um, discerning comment about some moral evil. Uh, in fact, I think the world is convinced that, that Christians are just not serious about following Jesus because they make these, these comments about things that are right or things that are not right and, and the way that we ought to live. And they just say, judge not, judge not. It, it seems to be an argument for mo- utter moral relativity. Whatever people want to do is absolutely fine. Jesus just wants us to get along, just wants us to love people. No judging, no discerning, no, um, no statements about uh, values or, or a better way or a lesser way. So that's the way the world understands it. So when we, we, when we hear this, we need to unpack it. What, is he, what does Jesus mean? Well, clearly he, he can't mean this just as a blanket um, prohibition of all judgments. So, so God has given the state, Romans 13, to punish the evildoer. Well, how do you know who the evildoer is? So Jesus clearly isn't prohibiting the judgments made by courts of law. Courts of law need to make judgments. They need to, to decide between this and that. You need to do that as a parent. Think about uh, in your home. Think about trying to be a parent and keep order in your home, keep utter uh, anarchy from breaking out. If you just say, well, honey, I'm sorry. I'm not going to judge in this. Mom, she, she just pasted me right in the face. I know, sweetheart, but I don't want to judge. Let's not judge. Yeah, but no, 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 we're not going to judge. How would that go in your home? Is that what Jesus means when he says, train up your children in the Lord? No, no, we've got to make judgments. 
We got to discern. We live in a world where there's evil, and we're called to, uh, we're not called to suspend our critical faculties. We're called to discern between truth and error, good and bad, right and wrong. You have to discern. If you don't discern, you've just sort of given up the whole business. You say, when leaders of the church don't discern, are unwilling to discern things between truth according to the Word of God and and untruth according to the Word of God. You see, if if you have nothing to say about that, you can't possibly fulfill Paul's commands to to guard the good deposit and to watch out for false teachers and and to, and to, to even rebuke them. Uh, churches that refuse to make a statement about, yeah, but I, you know, I don't think that's what the Bible says. You see, when, when there's a false teacher, and, and if the church refuses to stand and say, listen, here's the authority. This is what Jesus says. This is what Paul says. This is what, this is what that man is saying. This is truth. That's not truth. If you, don't, if you do not do that, you just leave your people completely defenseless. They don't know what's true and what's not true. If, Someone says it with sincerity. If it sounds reasonable, it must, be, it must be reasonable. That devastates the spiritual health of God's sheep. Unfortunately, there are, um, that, that sense has come into the church, even when it comes to discipline, where a church will say, well, we're not going to take sides. Even though there's maybe some gross sin that's been committed here, someone's been, has, has been violated and severely wronged in the body, the church will say, we're not going to pursue a discipline because we don't take sides. We don't judge. We don't discern those things. Well, okay. But it's wrong. I better a barroom brawl where there's justice being applied, right? I mean, that, that is more honoring to God than that. Not that I'm encouraging that, but <clears throat> you understand there's some sense of justice there. God is the God of justice. So Jesus clearly can't mean we're just going to get rid of all, all um, discerning thoughts or comments. We're not going to do that. What is he forbidding? Well, he, he's obviously con- forbidding a condemning, critical, judgmental spirit. He's forbidding the stance of the law. Where people live in the world and they have an eagle's eye for the failures and the faults and sins of others. And, and not only are they able to, to see keenly uh, what went wrong, what was said incorrectly or sinfully or done uh, contrary to the commands of God, but, but the, these people also feel like they have the ability to discern why the person did it. So you've maybe heard comments like that. Well, you know uh, what happened. You heard that, didn't you? Yeah. Do you know why that happened? And of course, um, by asking the question, you immediately get the sense, even if you are a complete ignoramus on the topic, they are quite well informed. They do know why it happened. And they're going to tell you why it happened. That's because of such and such and such. You know, you're just speaking out of your ignorance. But yet, that's what people commonly do. That's what we have done. Have you ever done that? The only reason he did this is because of that. We judge motives. How do you know a person's motives? So Stott says an individual who's on the wrong side of this command puts the worst possible construction on other people's motives and lacks generosity towards others when they sin or make mistakes. You see, so this is where the issue uh, confronts us. We, most of us, like to think we're, we're easy to get along with. We're, we're not perfect, but we generally like people. We uh, get along with people fairly well, and, and most of us do. 
Here's the question. What do you do with people's failures? It's easy, it's easy to get along with people when people are behaving. What do you do when people don't behave? What do you do when people blow it, when people sin, when people fail? That's, that's where the rubber hits the road. So when your wife fails to perform some task that you've asked her or you expected her to accomplish, where does your heart go with that? Do you go to bitterness? Do you go to resentment? Do you go to angry words? Do you go to assigning impure motives to her? Or are you quick to forgive, give her the benefit of the doubt, realize um, what a beautiful blessing she is in your life that you don't deserve? Where do you go with it? Wives, same back to your husbands. Where do you go with his failure when he fails to meet your expectations or when he flat out blows it and sins grievously? What do you do with, when your family, your extended family, when, when there's failure or a friend betrays you and says something that you hear coming back through the grapevine that was profoundly unkind and not true? What do you do with that? What do you do when a coworker undercuts you, stabs you in the back? What do you do when a schoolmate is, is just brutally uh, unkind to you? What do you do when people fail, when they sin, in the, awe, in, the, in the raw ugliness of that event, then where do you go? That's the issue. And to that, you see, Jesus says, do not judge and don't condemn. It's, it's in, the, in, in, in that place to judge is to declare someone uh, guilty as you condemn them, you label them as unfit, you label them as unworthy, you shun them, you remove yourself from them, maybe just emotionally. But you see, that stance is to live in the world with certain expectations, and, and they're, expect, they're your expectations. And you can say, well, I've got, biblical, I've got biblical reasons for my expectations. Look at what a husband ought to do. Have you read Ephesians chapter 5? He's supposed to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. He's not loving me the way Christ loved the church. Why can't I condemn? Why can't I judge that? Sounds good. But friend... Jesus is talking to you. Where does your heart go when people fail to do what this says? Don't judge. Don't condemn. Don't label people. I was, um, I was in Seattle and uh, coming back home um, Thursday morning, standing outside the hotel, 4.30 in the morning, and uh, waiting for the shuttle to show up, and it's me and this other guy. Get talking, and I say, you know, where are you from? And he said, he's from southwest Michigan. I go, well, really? Where, where about? Well, Plainwell. Well, I say, just, you know, just down the road from. What flight you taking? Turns out we're flying the exactly same flight all the way home. So that was kind of cool, and, and uh, got talking to him, and uh, he's sharing about, you know, their life. And at, at some point in the conversation, after we'd been talking for a while, he could tell he was, he was resisting opening up sort of about, they said they homeschooled, and so I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And... Um, and finally, he comes out with it. I, he knew I was a pastor. Finally, he comes out with it. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. And you could see when he said it, the way he looked at me was he wasn't sure that was safe to say. And I have to absolutely confess that at that moment, I wanted to go discussion over. I, I don't want to talk to Jehovah's Witness. 
I don't want to, the burden, I just want to get home, right? I don't, I don't, the burden of trying to convince. And, and, and then I thought, well, what about if I just treated him like a person? Just a guy, you know? Trying to get home to his family too. Trying to make the best of it just like everybody else. Guy's name's Craig. Maybe I could just be Craig's friend. So I did. We didn't have a single conversation about John 1, about um, the nature of Jesus. We just were two guys trying to get home. And maybe the Lord could use that in a, in a way that my arguments um, about the Greek in John 1 couldn't do at that moment, at least. Not to say, you see, we never speak up, but, but I wanted to shun Craig at that moment. I just wanted to remove myself from him. I didn't want to be in that, right, because I labeled him Jehovah's Witness outside of the bonds of people that I just normally associate with. Well, that's sin. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Who are the people in your life that you've just sort of put up a wall? You're not going to go there. You're not, you're not going to engage them just as someone else made in the image of God. Maybe it's because of their political stance. Maybe it's because of their, their sexual issues. Maybe uh, because uh, who, who knows? The way they look. And you've just quietly made a decision without even knowing you made the decision that that's just not a person that you're going to engage as a person, as someone who's trying to figure it out along with you. Do not condemn. We do it so easily. We do it so quickly. Walking through Meyer and you see someone in the potato chip aisle that does not need to be in the potato chip aisle and you think, <clears throat> right? That's where our hearts go. You know it's true. Someone says something stupid and you just sort of think to yourself, that guy's not the sharpest crayon in the box. And it sounds kind of clever, and you maybe even you note people's, uh, some, some of us, right, look for opportunities for other people's failures and their faults and their sins and show how clever we are by, by pointing it out. Do you know how wicked that is? You know how much Jesus hates that? He did not ask you to be in the world with that stance. You realize that when Jesus, Jesus saw every sin with perfect clarity, Jesus actually saw the motives and yet Jesus never was clever about someone else's failure. Never cracked a joke about someone's stupidity, about someone's unbelief, about their sin. If it was, if it, it was appropriate, he grieved the sin, right? He, he grieved Jerusalem's uh, refusal to believe and receive it. He grieved the sin. If necessary, he rebuked the sin. He never mocked it, never shamed it. He had compassion on the crowds. They're sheep without a shepherd. How are they supposed to know? Okay, they've had the law and the prophets, but they haven't had a decent prophet in hundreds of years. They're sheep without a shepherd. Maybe Craig's never had someone just sit down with him and open the Bible with him and as a, as a friend just talk to him about Jesus. You see, friends, this Jesus is talking to where we live. We need to put a guard on our heart but, and then on our mouth. Before we speak, just apply the simple three-step rule. Is it true? Is it kind? And is it necessary? That would cut out a lot of chatter. Is it true? Is it kind? 
Is it necessary? Do you see, friends, contrary to what we may think, the world doesn't actually need to hear our opinion on every instance of sin or failure around us. Our loved ones would be vastly better off if we canceled the running commentary on others' failures and maybe instead started speaking encouraging words of God's grace and His goodness and even the accomplishments and blessings of other people. We're not God's morality police. Isn't that nice? You can retire from that. You don't have to go through your neighborhood noting all the failures and in your heart sort of making a comment about it. You're, we are not God's morality police. That stance is contrary to Christ. That, that suspicious, wary, removed, critical stance where the world is there. We're here. We're right. The world is there. They're wrong. And we're just going to kind of be looking out. Jesus is forbidding it. Not that we shouldn't care about good things. You see, this is not moral relativism. We should care about the Word of God. Care about doctrinal truth. Care about a godly living. We must care about those things. But we also have to care about people and care about what Jesus cares about. Jesus tells us very strongly here, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. And it doesn't take a genius to turn that around and realize that if you live this lifestyle, if you, if you have this critical stance, this law stance, if that's your life, okay, the measure you use is the measure that God will use. And when you stand before him on the last day, the measure that you lived with and stood by, that's exactly what God will use in your life. And you will be judged and you will be condemned. That's what Jesus says. So how should we live? Well, the stance of grace is what Christ calls us to. Living in the exact same world that the critical person is, and yet a completely different way of being in that world, to live as an ambassador of grace, a, a channel of blessing. And so he says, we're to live then forgiving and giving. I'm going to turn those around just for, in order here. But, but we're to live with, with a giving nature, you see, with a generous nature. Uh, giving your money, giving your time, giving yourself to the needs of those around you to the needs of the world in which we live. It's a completely different stance. The critical person is always worried about losing something. The grace-filled person is always concerned about giving something, about sharing something. I want to share my home. I want to share my time. I want to share what, I, what I've learned by God's grace. I want to share myself. I just, I just want to walk with you. It's a, do, you, do you realize how fundamentally different this stance is? It's a completely different way of being in the world. And because, you see, we have the person who has that stance is a person who's going to be eager to forgive. To forgive. Someone said to return evil for good. If you, if you respond to, to good with evil, that's demonic. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And that's what Christ is calling us to do. To return good for evil. To show mercy to people who don't deserve mercy. Now again, if, you, if you're honest, you just know how hard that is. And you know how easily we settle for substitutes. And so maybe uh, someone wounded you severely and over time 
the wound sort of calloused over, and uh, you've, the pain isn't as bad anymore, and you can maybe even have a polite conversation with that person. Um, you've learned how to get along with them. But you haven't forgiven them. You see, Jesus isn't commanding us to get along. He's commanding us to forgive each other. To really actually forgive from the heart. It's an essential piece of being his disciple. Begg says this, A readiness to forgive is the acid test of our moral and spiritual character. A readiness to forgive is the acid test of our moral and spiritual character. It is the test of whether we are real Christians or not. To be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I think that's exactly right. To be a Christian is to forgive the inexcusable. You see, we, you might do pretty well at forgiving the common. So if someone comes and says to you, if you ever had an uncomfortable uh, conversation where someone comes and says, I just need to confess to you that what I said about that person uh, to you the other day, it was not kind. I think it was gossip, and I, I, I just really need to confess that is sin. And now you're in the awkward position of going, well, let's see, if they were sinning and I was listening to it, that would mean I'm sinning. So what you say is, uh, ah, no big deal, don't worry about it. It's a common sin. And we're quick to forgive common sins. But what about the inexcusable sin? The sin that there is no justifying there's no explaining it away. It was just evil, hateful, and devastating. Will you forgive that sin? Well, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Because remember what Jesus is going to say just a few verses later on. He's going to say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? I hope you feel the squeeze of this. I've been, it's been squeezing me all week long. How do you actually, truly, receive the full brunt and pain of someone's sin against you and yet from your heart will forgiveness and pursue it? Well, the answer is found right here as we wrap up. We need to see things from a new perspective. We have to have our eyes open. And we need to realize that the greatest obstacle uh, in our relationships is not the inexcusable reality of my neighbor's sin, but my inexcusable inability to see my sin. So Jesus moves directly on, and he says, can a blind man lead a blind man? Now, that seems like an odd question. Just sort of pop up, can a blind man, he tells him this parable, clearly in relationship to what he's taught, can a blind man lead, lead a blind man? Why would he ask that? Because, you see, blind people are stuck. Blind people can't help other people. Blind people don't even realize their own predicament in that sense, particularly if they're trying to point out the way to somebody else. We need to see, and we have a sight problem. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that is in your eyes, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? And when Jesus is talking log, he's talking about one of the, one of the, the pillars of the temple. I mean, it's a, it's a massive thing. You see, friends, we have this incredible ability to see, actually to see the failures and sins of other people and to be absolutely blind to what's going on in our own heart. Think of the story of King David. 
By the time Nathan shows up at his door, the deed's already done. The illegitimate baby is in the nursery. The illegitimate wife is somewhere back in the palace. The husband has been put to death. David is living an absolute lie. And so Nathan comes to him, and they're sitting down, they're having lunch, and Nathan says, I've got to share something that's happened. There's this rich man that has all sorts of flocks, sheep, goats, whatever, and his neighbors, this really poor man, has got one little lamb that, that actually lives with him in the family, and they, they, they love that thing like it's part of the family. And And yet a traveler came through town, stopped at the rich man's house, and so the rich man decided to to make a meal for him. And rather than taking one of the countless lambs that he had, you know what that guy did? He went to this poor man's house, walked into the house, grabbed that little lamb that was a part of the family, and he took it and killed it and used it to feed his guest. Well... I mean, that is, that is, that's just over the top. Everybody can see how, what an outrage that is, and David is, he's outraged. Such a thing should not be done anywhere in the world, much less in his kingdom. This is a godly kingdom. This is a righteous kingdom. Such offenses are not going to be tolerated. And so David speaks As surely as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And truer words were never spoken. He just didn't realize he was the man. He never saw it. Can you imagine that? Didn't ring any bells. Never saw it until Nathan stuck his finger right in his face and said, you're the guy. Never saw it. And the evidence is laying all around him. Friends, that is our human predicament. In fact, when you are the most outraged over someone else's sin, it's most likely that that is when you are the most blind to yours. I was, uh, we were traveling, we had a meeting to go to this last week, and we're traveling down the road, and I told the guys, I'm, I'm studying uh, Luke 6, and I think this text has a lot to say to our brothers that we're going to go meet with, because, man, they are not seeing the log that is in their eye. Um, and so I'm explaining how this can be a really helpful tool, and, and then suddenly it dawned on me. Well, <clears throat> maybe Jesus has something to say to Dale Van Dyke. Maybe the, the outrage and the frustration that Van Dyke feels about the sins that he sees has is, is got something to do with sins that he doesn't see. You see what Jesus is doing, friends? He's just, he's just laying wide open. Uh, we're hypocrites. We're hypocrites. When we take a stance of law, you, Dad, you take a stance of law in your home and you set down the law in your house and you say, right, in this home, this is the way it's going to be and that is not going to happen and there's going to be judgment. I promise you there's going to be judgment. And that's your stance in your home? Dads, I want to ask you, what do you got going on in your life? What don't you see? What are you blind to? Because you're blind. 
Think about Psalm 38 when David's talking about his sin. He says, my wounds stink and fester because of my sin, because of my foolishness. And then he says, I'm like a man who does not hear, like a man in whose whose mouth there is no rebuke. He's stepped aside from the, the stance of law as he looks at his own sin and sees his own guilt. Now, again, you see, it doesn't doesn't mean we don't make judgments. It doesn't mean we don't lovingly discipline our children. It's what's the stance going to be. And you you cannot possibly have the correct stance when you are blind to your sin. You need Jesus to stick his finger right in your chest and lovingly say, Sir, you are the man. Ma'am, you are the woman. Because then, you see, there's hope for you. Then you're you're going to realize what discipleship is actually about. This sermon is not ten easy steps for being a good disciple. This sermon is is more like ten devastating blows to pound you to a pulp and make you realize you need Jesus. And if you don't experience it that way, you're not hearing it. That's what Jesus is doing. He's just bam, bam, bam. Do you see you? Do you understand your need? All the angels in heaven see it, right? They look at our lives and they go, wow, how can these people be so blind? Your friends might be saying, how could this person be so blind? You want a really honest conversation? Just ask your friends, okay, what do you see that I don't see? What what do I not see? Be a great conversation. You see, the friends, as I wrap up, the point of the point of this sermon is, is to make us realize the only escape is grace. The only escape, the only, the only possible hope for us, if we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to take the name of Christian, is we have got to receive the lavish, amazing grace of God. These are not things that we can do in our strength. We, we just simply can't possibly. But when grace falls on you, when you acknowledge, Lord, I am the judgmental person, and, and I get angry, and I get, I get impatient because I'm proud, I'm proud, and I'm selfish, and I'm hateful, and I say wicked, mean things, and I, and I harbor these grudges in my life, in my heart. I don't forgive. I don't want to forgive. When you confess your sin and ask for God's forgiving grace, the Bible says he's faithful to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. When you receive the grace of God, even though you are the hypocrite, that you are. When the grace becomes real to you and you realize that you are not going to be condemned even though you have condemned, you're not going to be judged even though you judge. And the reason you're not going to be judged and condemned is because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross and was judged and condemned for all of your sin. So that God's mercy and love and grace can just shower down upon you and flood your life. See, when you realize that, when that's real to you, then you won't be able to judge or condemn. Your stance is going to be grace. You're going to be this person that Jesus talks about in in John 4, I believe, where he talks about springs of living water flowing out of you. you. As you receive in the grace of God for you, the sinner, all free, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, you're going to have springs of living water and you're going to have a different stance as you're disciplining your beautiful little children, as you're speaking to an erring friend, as you're talking to a spouse that's wounded you, a completely different stance. And friend, you will be a disciple. 
of Jesus. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, you know us. Some of us this morning, Lord, have done exactly the things that you forbid, and some of us sitting here right now are maybe caught in that trap, and we can think of names and instances where we've been wronged, and we've judged, and we've condemned, and we've not forgiven, and we've hypocritically spoken hard words out of our self-righteous blindness. Oh, God, we just confess it before you as great, great sin. We confess, Lord, that we've looked at the world with a hypocritical, judgmental eye. We've looked at grievous sin in the body and among brothers and sisters with a condemning, judgmental eye. We have not, Lord, borne with the failures of those in our family, for our friends. We've been impatient, condemning. And so, Jesus, we confess the truth. We confess our sin. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would give every heart here the the freedom to acknowledge their their hypocrisy. And that we would see it as as a wicked, wicked thing. And we would become like David, people with no rebukes in our mouth. Doesn't mean we don't speak truth but our stance is completely different. For our stance becomes the stance of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into this world not to condemn the world, but that through, the world, that through him the world might be saved. Oh, make us disciples of that Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen.